0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Invested. I'm Danielle Town. Continuing our focus on management and obviously how important that is, we've got another episode from the vault this week. It's episode number 123, and it's on choosing your management team. So enjoy, and we will be back next week with new episodes. Thanks, everybody. Bye.
1: Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town.
0: This is Danielle Town and welcome to
1: the Invested podcast, where we're talking about how to buy individual companies, the way Warren Buffett does, the way Charlie Munger does. How to how to go after a very high rate of return with what we would consider very low risk, which is well, that sounds great. Doesn't exist as far as most of the regulators are concerned, and most mm-hmm. of the and most of the academics and. Um, I could almost say almost all the academics, and probably 95% of the people who are managing money and almost all of the financial advisors, none of them believe this is this is how the world works. And we've discussed why at great length, um, and I'll summarize it really quickly here. Modern portfolio theory is the standard theory under which money is managed and which advisors are taught by the SEC to, to, uh, to uh, manage money. And that theory says that price is equal to value in the stock market uh, because nobody's stupid enough to pay too much or 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 to buy it for too much and the uh, or sell it for too little. And so, in this sort of perfect world of rational people in the stock market, no one ever makes a mistake on price. So um, this. Amazing. Which, of
0: course, we all know makes total common sense. No one ever makes a mistake on price ever. No one ever does. And that all just makes total sense and we should all believe in it and all go home.
1: You know, I wrote an article for Value Walk and I I just want to mention one thing about it because I thought it brought out one really cool thing about modern portfolio theory. When BP's well blew up in the Gulf of Mexico, the stock price went from 60 down to 27, Mm -hmm. but it didn't go to zero in spite of people like Jim Kramer saying that the company was gonna go bankrupt. And what you had there is a really good example of why modern portfolio theory is a complete crock. It's something you have to cook up in an academic office in an ivory tower. It doesn't exist in the real world. And the reason that's the case is if you think about it, the price stopped at 27 because a lot of people were buying the stock at 27, believing that the company would not go bankrupt and it would go back to 60, which is what it was worth.
0: Yeah. And yeah.
1: a lot of people were selling the stock at 27 believing it was going to go to 0. In other yeah, words, yeah, so
0: obviously everyone's working off of guesses.
1: Well, even worse in this particular case, you can see it so clearly, $27 was the wrong price for everybody.
0: Yeah, that's the best <laughs> that's the best part. It was either worth exactly what it was before the oil spill, right? Or it was worth 0. Right. Those are the two options. <laughs> those are the
1: two reasonable options for rational people. And yet the price was 27. Now the yeah, academics don't have an answer. To a that lot
0: either. of people disagreed about which of those things is true.
1: Exactly. Instead of being So everyone the valuable... but see
0: that's what's interesting about the theory I think is is it, it it expects everyone to have the same information and it doesn't actually say this, but it expects everyone to draw the same conclusions from right. that information. Right. So We are in a great world now of the internet where we do all have pretty much instantaneous information. In a lot of ways, we do all have the same information at the same time in a very different way than even like 20 years ago. So in that way, we are so efficient. But... We're never going to draw the same conclusions from this information. And I think an, I mean, acad- and an
1: academic would say, well, it's all and it is, in fact, what a market does is it has all of these different opinions and the wisdom of the masses are that it eventually comes um, when you congeal all these opinions into a single price, you've come to the actual value of the business. But unfortunately, you can see this is obviously not the case. One of these two groups was going to be right. That was either right. going to go to zero or it was likely, you know, if, st- if if oil prices stayed up at 100, it would go back to 60. In fact, it did go back up to 50 before oil prices dropped. So the group that thought it was actually not going to go bankrupt was, was right and made a tremendous amount of money um, riding that thing back up to roughly where it was. So you can see that really the market can be very emotional and people can have very rational opinions that are totally opposite from each other, leaving you with a price that is not an approximation of value at all for either group. It's yeah. It's not a compromise. It's a It's a very war. true. Yeah.
0: Well, and we we just came off of a few episodes talking about Amazon and Whole Foods, where we talked about how they reached their deal price of buying Whole Foods at $42 a share. And it's very much the same kind of analysis. I mean... Each side has the same and not each side has exactly the same information, right? Like the company will have different information than the buyer, but they have roughly on the whole, let's say 90% the same information. And, uh, and somehow they get to a point where $42 makes the seller happy and makes the buyer happy. I mean, in a way that's rather extraordinary, that we come to deals like that, well, it's, that, it's, it's, it's that like BP we, lands at twenty seven, and everyone kind of goes, eh, okay, yeah, that's twenty seven, okay, you know, it's it's pretty actually amazing in markets.
1: It is quite interesting. I mean, we we do it every day in every market, and we don't think much about it because it's not yeah, it's not thirteen point nine billion dollars that we're talking about. It's forty seven dollars, or twenty seven dollars. But when it gets to be thirteen point nine billion, we start to think, well, things are, things are going to work differently. So people mostly yeah, all do of a get sudden, together.
0: Point nine of a billion suddenly looks really big. Yeah, because it is. Mil- it's enormous. Are you kidding me?
1: I, I, you know, just the numbers are so sheer. Um, they're just amazing. Warren Buffett gave a talk once where he was talking about you know, trying to pick companies that he could really understand and how Bill Gates wanted him to buy Microsoft. Heck, Bill Gates just wanted him to buy a computer. And Buffett was like, <laughs> why would I want to do that? And he said, Gates said, well, you can do your taxes. And Buffett said, well, I don't make any money because <laughs> all his money is invested. So um, he, he went on to say, look, I got to do stuff that's really simple. Bill could understand something like Microsoft, but I, I can't figure that, that stuff out. He said, here's what I can figure out. Coca-Cola has been in business for 120 years. Coca-Cola has 1.8 billion servings of Coke every day. If Coke raises its price by one penny, that adds $18 million a day in net profit. At 365 days, it is um, ballpark uh, $6.7 billion from one cent. He said, is Coca-Cola worth 1 cent more than Joe's cola? I think so. <laughs> There's Buffett, right? So this is a business that is relatively easy to understand compared to say, you know, Intel or Microsoft or something else that depends on on yeah, creative true. genius every day, you know? So, you know, one of the things that's important to, to look at and we we promised we would get over into um, a discussion about management. Is that often what you're buying really is a management team that's really good at what they do? <laughs> so let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about the all important jockey who's riding this horse that we want to own. Um, in venture capital, the the rule, and you've you've been done legal work for venture capitalists, and I don't know if they say this in your world, but in mine, they would say that you bet the jockey, not the horse, is in venture capital in startups. Absolutely. I think that's true?
0: I think it's true. I think everyone doing investing should be doing that, doing like early stage investing should be doing that. Um, And the reason why is that early stage, high growth startups change their business constantly. I mean, to say that a business pivots has become such a, a, you know, annoying catchphrase at this point that nobody even wants to say it anymore. But that's what they do. They change their product. They change their team. They change how they're marketing it. They change the platform and they do it very quickly. And so if you're betting on the product, that product's probably going to change in the next six months. So it's not the best idea. What you want to do is bet on the founders because they're the ones who are going to make the decisions about those changes. And And you also want people that you want to work with because you're, you know, as a VC, you get very involved with the companies.
1: And I think we really ought to put about that amount of emphasis uh, maybe slightly less um, on companies that exist and have been around ten years and are being operated by a management team and um, and the reason is is because again Charlie is talking about Charlie Munger is talking about four things we have to look at we got to understand the business it's got to have some ability to, to protect itself from competitors that we call a moat and we would like it to have a management team that has talent and integrity, because yes. those guys can run the business into the ground, um, you know. And and when you think about venture capital, of course, it's even more critical, as you say, because they, almost apparently, there's just almost there's just very few companies that actually produce what they start off to produce.
0: Oh, it's in so the high rare. tech world. Uh, yeah, I I don't even know if it happens ever because at some point you're going to change some key part of that product. It's just that's just how it works as you learn more about your market. I mean, what these people are doing is inventing a market, right? Like most of them are inventing a product that doesn't exist, and it doesn't exist because nobody's thought of it or nobody's been able to do it before, or it has been done but not well, and so nobody's brought it to market successfully. Again, these are early stage newly founded companies, they're not established companies. So it's just a completely different world than these huge, you know, been around for 10 or 15 years publicly traded companies that we're looking at. But at the same time, I totally agree with you. I mean, Charlie says we would like to have management with integrity and talent. And I think he says that a little bit to hedge because it's so hard to know without – meeting people and getting to know them and seeing how they conduct themselves in their business and we as small investors can't really do that but um i i would say it's vital i mean these are the people that are shepherding our money they pe- as investors
1: i agree and I, I think that charlie would would hedge it slightly in saying we would like to have this management team whereas a venture capital group is going to say we have to have it okay. um, because this company that's been around ten or fifteen years. We wouldn't be interested in it. We wouldn't be looking at the management team unless it had a big moat, and that big moat is what allows Charlie to hedge on the management team because that yeah, moat, that's true. as Warren says, hey, you've got to buy companies with a big enough moat that an idiot could run, you know, a simple enough business that the idiot could could run the business because someday an idiot will. In other yeah. words, eventually, a one hundred year old company is going to have a management team that can wreck it if it doesn't have a big enough moat. Let me, let me give you a couple of really good examples. Um, one is General Motors that had a series of managers who essentially ran the company into the ground um, while they were basking in the glory of 60 years of previous success. Along came the Japanese and handed GM its butt um, and it was a slow moving train wreck, but it just, it, I could see, I wrote about it in rule one,
0: mm-hmm. what, about
1: 10, 12 years ago, this, before the company ever went bankrupt, you could see the bankruptcy coming. You could see the train wreck coming in slow motion. Um, and that was entirely due to management collusion with labor to strip the company because neither group was on the same side of the, of the world as the investors, they they neither group cared about the investors at all and they they basically rated the company now a current example is going on with um well we just talked about the example of whole foods with with amazon where the management team made enormous efforts to be sure that they could preserve the quality of the company yeah
0: yeah yeah absolutely that's right? a huge example right there yep
1: and then you've got the example of Chicago Bridge and Iron, which is was run up until just the last few weeks by a guy named Philip Asherman. He'd been running it for several years, and he took that company into the tank. I mean, by one bad decision after another, um, hmm. he acquired uh, Shaw from um, some guys, in uh, at, at a Ber- this guy named Bernhardt. Who, and Shaw was in a deal with a nuclear power plant in Georgia and South Carolina, and those guys were not delivering on their technology. And as a result, there's this huge lawsuit that is actively trying to take down Westinghouse. Westinghouse is gonna go bankrupt because of it, and Toshiba may go bankrupt because of it. And these guys got tied into Chicago Bridge and Iron because Chicago Bridge and Iron bought Shaw and all of a sudden was in the middle of this disaster. It was a completely Wait, how are Shaw self-inflicted and wound. and
0: Toshiba and Westinghouse connected? Oh, sorry. Connected.
1: Westinghouse hired Shaw to provide uh, huge chunks of this nuclear power plant. And Shaw wow. kept delivering it not good quality, not on time. And mm. so eventually Westinghouse simply purchased Shaw from CBI for basically no money. Hmm. And CBI had just paid almost $3 billion for Shaw like two years earlier. They just, I mean, Asherman took out essentially took out one or two billion, one and a half to two billion dollars into the parking lot in cash, lit it on fire and burned it. <laughs> 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 and they only funny. just got around to firing him. They didn't even call it that. They they call it he's he's volu- he's retiring Oh sure. I'm, sure,
0: I'm sure with thirty million dollars in a golden parachute.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, they they gave him a raise from fourteen million to twenty million after he did that. Oh.
0: Got to, Stunning.
1: yeah. So yeah, you can't you,
0: let him go. But hungry. Chicago
1: Bridge and Iron, um, I think, will recover because it's a really but, good company.
0: It, well, that's what I was going to ask. So, if the whole point is that the moat is meant to protect against somebody like that, did they just not have a good enough moat?
1: No, it's quite a good moat. Um, Chicago Bridge and Iron has been around for a hundred years. They are a uh, they're the best in the world at making a bid on their niche for engineering, which is energy okay. plants. They do liquid natural gas plants and oil refineries and all this stuff. And they sort of got double whammy. They had this Shaw thing happen for nuclear power. And at the same time, the oil dropped and everybody quit building any kind of thing with oil. So, Mm. but they're the best in the world and have been for a hundred years at fixed bid bidding, which is very dangerous. If you don't do it right, you go, you go broke. Mm. So they will recover. I'm I'm pretty sure. So, although I don't own them (laughs) at this point.
0: Well, I'm I mean, it's just—it's sure. a really—I find that a really interesting example. If the whole point is to have a company that's sort of person-proof
1: yeah, or person executive-proof, proof, and here's here's what then, the executives uh, can do—that one's s- not. Well, it's not because these executives went out and took in a lot of debt. It's hmm. the debt that kills, and I, I can't st- emphasize this too strongly, Danielle. If you buy a company, please really look at that debt and make sure it's a very small. Percentage of the of the overall, uh, or really, what you should look at is look at the earnings or the free cash flow and see how long it would take to pay it off. If they can, and we
0: want what one to two years?
1: Yeah, one to two years is good. Three years max. Okay. And none is perfect.
0: None is perfect. None,
1: none years. So Chicago Bridge and Iron went for years without, with very little debt, and then all of a sudden loaded up on debt as Asherman tried to build this magnificently gigantic company, which is, of course, what well, Mercenaries Well, right, and that's do. the
0: counter argument, right? Okay, new person comes in. This is I know nothing about this company, but I'm assuming it's some sort of old company, probably been around for a long time. It sounds very like industrial age bridge and iron and he's probably thinking okay i've got to modernize it and in order to modernize it i need some cash so i'm going to take on some debt like the charitable perspective is that right yeah yeah and in the charitable perspective that's a really good thing to do like yeah bring the company into the 21st century punch it up like make it super competitive and yeah if you need money to do that take on some debt
1: and be a superhero Invent, and be a superhero. Earn that $30 million
0: Coke. golden bear, and invent new
1: Coke. <laughs> <laughs> We're laughing because that's happened in the late 1990s. The, the the CEO of Coca-Cola was thinking exactly like what Danielle said. Let's bring this. Let's modernize this company. And he wanted to change the formula and it just killed the company. So <laughs> he got fired. No, he didn't get fired. He, he left for personal Of course he reasons. didn't get
0: fired. Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> he lost her <for> thirty million dollars.
1: <laughs> you know, you just wish for a world where they wouldn't pull punches. You know, they would just say it like it is, but they just won't. So here's uh, here's here's the the killer is that debt will be one of the first things that a management team is going to do um, to try to make themselves look wonderful and to to make the company grow, um, particularly the top line, which is revenue. They, they, hmm. These management teams love to make a bigger company in terms of the sales it makes. And often what you'll see is that the return on equity will start going down badly. And return on invested capital will go down like a brick as they start to add debt without getting a really good return on it. And that's where it's but I time guess, to exit. I guess
0: my question is, why is it automatically bad? I mean, why couldn't? Some new CEO actually be a superhero.
1: He could be, and there are great superhero CEOs who do that. Um, but there's a couple of really good signs for a superhero CEO. One is that they jealously guard the return on invested capital. So, while but they, if
0: they're taking on all sorts of debt to finance their superheroiness,
1: mm-hmm.
0: how can they do that?
1: Well, they take on the debt to do one of two things, right? Either build new new structures, new plants, new manufacturing, something mm-hmm. like that, or mm-hmm. like uh, like uh, CF Corporation is the largest fertilizer company in America, and they they're spending the last three years building a new nitrogen fertilizer plant on the Mississippi River, and it, you know obviously as they spend the money, the return on equity and return on invested capital goes down for a short period of time, yeah. but you can see that when this plant goes operational, where that will go. So you have to understand the business. It's fundamental that you understand the business you're looking at so that you can make that kind of a judgment.
0: But- So what you're saying is you gotta decide if they're spending the money wisely. Exactly.
1: The, the exactly. borrowed money wisely. Exactly. And that's a, that's a real judgment call and that can make it too hard for most people to invest in that thing. So we don't try to invest in things that are too hard. In this particular case, cbi was much more what normally happens when they're borrowing money is they take the shortcut they take the easy way to grow the company which is to simply buy their competitors and Mm. of course their competitors look around and say oh these guys are trying to grow this huge company let's charge them a fortune for us yeah and that's exactly what happens and when they charge them a fortune then they don't get a good return on the invested capital invested capital returns go down and you can see this come going along over time. And when you see this going along over time, if you cannot justify in your own mind by understanding the business, what that's going to result in, then get out of that business, sell it out and and move on to something else that's easier to understand. Hmm. The best thing is no debt. I mean, that's the best. It makes life. Yeah,
0: sick. I mean, I totally get it. And it was very simple. I like that. Like, don't get me wrong. Yay, no debt. I just am kind of wondering in that situation where you have a company that you you think you understand it, you do understand it, you love it, and they have a new executive who has taken on debt for X, Y, and Z purpose. You think X, Y, and Z purpose are fantastic. And that person is doing or is going to do a great job with that borrowed money. Like, I, I guess it, I, I guess I'm just wondering sort of w- where the gray area is on that rule. So that makes more sense. If you understand what they're doing with the borrowed money and you think they're using it wisely, then then you're kind of OK with it. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and the there shouldn't here's here's the really critical thing that you shouldn't get into a gray area. If it, there's a tons of gray areas, just don't go there. Don't, it's like, (laughs) it's like, don't, don't go into an alley at two in the morning. Okay. It's just, that's a gray area. You'll probably be okay. (laughs) (laughs) You'll probably be okay, but you might not. So don't go there. All right. So, you know, it's like-
0: wait a second. Is that different than what you just said? Because what you said earlier, so here's what I've, what I've heard. Don't buy a company that has more than three years. I don't know how to say this properly, where you can't pay off the debt in more than three years with free than three cash years. flow. Yeah. Less, in than, less than, three. than three years with free cash flow. Yeah. Then you said, if you understand what they're doing with the borrowed money and you think they're using it wisely, that's okay. If it takes more than three years to Oh, pay
1: no, no, no. Not if it takes more oh. than three years. Oh, okay. If they're loading up more than three years of debt, they're in danger of a big, big problem. So that's why I'm staying a little bit away from some of these companies that I like. Uh,
0: okay. that have so loaded even, up on even debt. if you get it, even if you think they're doing a great thing, if it's more than three years, you're you're out. like yeah. no way. That's So that's what you mean by don't go into the gray area.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. And the gray area is also where you're not sure you understand the business well enough to make a judgment like that right so you got you got to understand the business i mean there's a there's a really good business out there called um Calman eggs That's a family owned company they produce i think
0: we've talked about them before we on have. the podcast i remember yeah. them
1: and i'm just pointing pointing to them again because they've reduced their debt load dramatically um, over the last year or so and um, you know it 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 takes it from a company that i'd be concerned about right like mm. you know where it's got I mean, not really concerned. I mean, these guys have enough cash, for example, that particular company has about five hundred million dollars in cash, or they did it one a couple of years ago, and their debt was like forty million.
0: Sorry, say those numbers again.
1: So like the company had five hundred million dollars in
0: cash, okay, and their debt was forty million.
1: Yeah, their long term debt was forty million. Now you gotta feel okay about that, you know.
0: Yeah, they, that they seems could, okay. They
1: could pay it off. Also, their net income was about three hundred, you know, two hundred to three hundred million a year.
0: Why would a company with five hundred million dollars in cash keep any debt? Why wouldn't they just pay it off? What's the point of paying the debt service?
1: Um, when interest rates are extremely low, <clears throat> you can uh, increase your dividend, for example, by. Like, let's say you just really wanted to have a lot of cash on hand for the future because you would like to buy companies when things okay. are cheap. So uh-huh. things are not cheap right now. So they're just holding on to the cash. They don't want to give it to the shareholders in the form of a dividend. They want to hold on to it. Yeah. But they do want to give the shareholders a dividend. They can borrow money at 2%. So they, they say, okay, let's just borrow 30 or $40 million and we'll pay a dividend with that. And we can hold on to our cash and our interest rate is just almost nil. So a lot of companies are doing that right now. With it's just one one it's more just aberration that happens.
0: It's because the rates. money's so cheap.
1: Money's so basically. cheap. Yeah, the money's so cheap. Now the other reason that management teams do it, not Calmain eggs, but so this particular company, you know, is a, is a small family-owned company, they don't have to do anything. They don't want. It. They don't have to do anything for how the public perceives it. Whereas a big company like a Coca-Cola is very aware of public perception all the time, and so you know they'll they'll. They will take on a reasonable amount of debt, you know, two years of of free cash flow worth of debt. And then they will, by doing that, they can reduce their equity that they have in the company, pay that out as a dividend, and their return on equity goes up. Hmm. It's a clever little way to juice your financials, actually.
0: Will you say that one more time?
1: Sure. Let's say you have $1,000 of equity and you have $100 of income, net income and you have no debt. So you have a return on equity of 10%, right? Yes. Okay. Now, what you want to do is show Wall Street how great a manager you are. So you want to see your return on equity go up because you know that a lot of Wall Street analysts look at that as an important figure on well, how so well the company's we, being the run. Way. And so do we. Yeah. All right. So, a quick and easy way to do that without increasing your earnings at all is to simply reduce your equity. So I could pay out-
0: Oh, I gotcha, okay, got it, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, just to make it extreme, I pay out $500 of dividends. I now have $500 of equity and $100 of earnings. Yeah, I'm a genius. I just now made 20% return on equity. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: See that? Mm -hmm. Now the catch is I can't actually run the company on $500. I need (laughs) 1,000. So Minor. I pay out the $500 in dividends, make those guys really happy, the shareholders, and I replace it with borrowed money. Yeah. So I borrow $500 million or $500. Now my return on equity is still $100 divided by $500 because that's all the equity there is. Yeah. Because I've added debt to replace the old equity. And I still and look like a genius
0: that's also why we look at return on invested capital right which includes it is the debt
1: because return on invested capital of course in the first instance is also ten percent right ten a thousand dollar dollars of of equity and no debt still adds up to a thousand dollars yes divided into a hundred dollars of earnings that's ten percent but now what's happened is I've got five hundred dollars of equity and five hundred dollars of debt so my return on invested capital is one hundred dollars divided by a thousand. So it has stayed the same, yep, go. so you see you know often it'll even go down a bit because it'll be more than five hundred dollars that I
0: borrow. I actually find that comparing return on equity to return on invested capital is the most useful way to look at those numbers. Like to me, rather than looking at like whether return on equity is going up or down year over year, seeing what happens to it each year compared to a return on invested capital is like the really informative part, because then I don't even have to look at the debt number. I can just tell if debt's changing.
1: Exactly. How how do you tell that debt's changing by looking at the variation?
0: Because the return on invested capital will change according to the debt. So if it's going down, that means they took on more debt, whereas return on equity doesn't show that.
1: If it's going down relative to return relative on relative to return on yeah, yeah. Exactly. That just immediately means they took on more debt.
0: Yeah. Well done. And and I don't like numbers a lot. So that's a really easy way for me to just say, oh, more debt. And that's well all I need to know. It's more. <laughs> Maybe I should know exactly how how much. But um yeah, I don't know. It works. Well, let's let's
1: uh, let's dive into management a bit more because I want to show you a really. Um, we'll have to do it the next the next podcast, but the next podcast. Let's look at um, this little company called Dry Ships, which is a Greek shipper um, that that delivers iron ore around the world. And what this happened is- to their stock when management decides it doesn't owe anything to the shareholders?
0: Yeah, this is this article in the Wall Street Journal that you mentioned a couple episodes ago. Yep. And now we're going to talk about it. So just so you guys know, you can find it online. And um, it was in, I have the citation here. It was in the July 14th, 2017 print edition. It's called Shipping Firm Takes Investors on Wild Ride.
1: Yeah, and just to, you know, not to to give away the bottom line here, but the footnote at the bottom of this article says that A few, like today, um, if you had had 1,680,000 shares of dry ships a couple of years ago, today you would own one share, which probably would make you angry.
0: Or there are very good reasons for it, Dad.
1: Or it's a really Who valuable knows? one share. Yeah, it's a really valuable All we valuable know one is share.
0: that it's been a wild ride.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh, man. I'll tell you what, it gets crazier than that. I mean, when you look at the stock chart on these guys, um, several years ago, they were priced in current shares. The opening price was $8,760,000 per share. And today, that same share is worth $221. Oh my
0: God. <laughs> I have no words for that. I think we uh, need to end.
1: I think that I have a word for it, but uh, I could be perhaps prosecuted by a very rich guy in the Greek islands. So I think I'll hold up on that one until next week after I check with my lawyer. So until then, I think it's time to go play. You ready? All
0: right. Thanks, everybody.
1: Bye. See you guys. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to InvestedPodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.